But what it means was that he was deliberately and willfully living to please God. Asa was in a sense saying, I don't care what people think about me. I'm going to do what's right in the sight of the only person that, I li that I'm living to please. It's just a joy and a privilege to be worshiping the Lord with you today. There's no greater joy or experience than worshiping the Lord. It's also a joy to be hearing the word of the Lord to us. And the Lord speaks many key things to us, often early in the service, and I trust that you pay attention. When the Lord speaks, just like you, when you talk, you like people to pay attention. And uh, the Lord said a number of things to us, just to mention a, a couple of them in the service already. The Lord said to us that if we walk with him, we will not walk in fear. And uh, he said that um, we will we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. The Lord also said to us earlier in the service that we're royalty. What it means to be royalty is, is to be sons and daughters of the king. So we're princes and princesses by God's grace. So... And then just a moment ago, the Lord spoke to us and said that he is, he, is, he is calling us, he is speaking to us, and he expects us to respond to his word. So just a few of the things that the Lord is, has shared with us already today. And uh, so praise the Lord for not only allowing us to worship him, but also being gracious to speak his word to us. Amen. We are going to continue in our study of the book of Chron books of Chronicles, and we are in Second Chronicles. Um, just a few, just a couple of minutes, we're going to be reading in Second Chronicles chapter 14. So, if you have one of these things and you want to grab it, this would be a great opportunity for you to do that as we uh, prepare to look into the Word of the Lord. And uh, in addition to the things that the Lord has been speaking to us already today. I just wanted to remind you, the Lord gave a special word to us last Sunday through El Predicator, my brother Ephraim was sharing here and standing in this spot, and he shared with us, if you were here, you remember, uh, from Second Chronicles chapters 6 and 7, and uh, we heard some things about, uh, from, about David and about Solomon, the first two kings that we study in the books of Chronicles. And uh, Ephraim mentioned uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple and his prayer to the Lord during his dedication. And he said, Lord, may your eyes be open to this temple, to this house, this place, day and night. The Lord watches his people, watches over us, his temple. Day and night, he never falls asleep, never slumbers or sleeps. Also, Ephraim mentioned that uh, the Lord spoke to David in Psalm 32, verse 8, Psalm 32, 8, and the Lord said this to him, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or the mule who don't have any understanding and need a bit and a bridle to hold them in check or they won't come near to you. The Lord speaking to us about, he, about what, the fact that he sees, he is aware of what is going on in our lives, and we're going to continue to see that uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 14. 
I'd like to talk to you and I'd like us to think for a few minutes today about the this, this, this topic of war and peace. War and peace. You know, this is the beginning of the second year of the, of the uh, invasion of Ukraine, a time when war is in our mind. And uh, war and peace, a big topic. And you may say, well, that, Ted, that's kind of a large subject to cover in just one sermon. But, you know, we have plenty of time and uh, I'm feeling relaxed. I hope you are too. But um, some of you may also feel like I may be in danger of plagiarism because you may recognize that that title, War and Peace, has been used before. Any of you familiar with the, one of the longest novels ever written by Leo Tolstoy is called War and Peace. And uh, he was talking about, Tolstoy was talking about war and peace in 19th century Russia, speaking of Russia. And, but we're going to be talking about war and peace because it's, those two things have been around for a long time. And uh, about 28 centuries earlier, uh, there was war and peace going on in Israel and Judah. And we're going to be looking at uh, war and peace in the life uh, of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and specifically the reign of King Asa, righteous King Asa. About a, a month ago or so, I, I, I shared also from Chronicles, but from First Chronicles, chapter 14. And in First Chronicles 14, you may remember, it was a time of warfare very early in David's reign, and the Philistines came and they made a, ra a, a raid in the valley of Rephaim, and the Lord had a, his anointing upon David, to, who was also called in the scriptures a man of war, to oppose the enemy and to see victory, and the Lord broke through by David's hand. He broke through his enemies like the breakthrough of waters, a time of war. The Lord's anointing is also on King Asa of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And Asa had a special anointing to, be rule, to rule and to reign in a time of peace, a time of prosperity. And we're going to see the Lord's provision. The Lord is faithful in every circumstance. He's not just good in war, he's not just good in peace, but every circumstance, uh, and the Apostle Paul recognizes this in Philippians chapter four, and Philippians four, he says that I'm, I learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. So uh, he says, um, I've learned the secret, this is Philippians four, and, and I know many of you are familiar with these words, but Paul says, I've learned the secret of, of being filled and of going hungry. I've learned the secret of having an abundance and suffering need. In fact, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because God is with us in all kinds of circumstances. David in a time of war, Asa in a time of peace. It was the virtue of King Asa about whom we're going to read that brought about the peace and the prosperity that the Lord afforded to Judah during his reign. And so we're going to read now about Asa's reign, at least the beginning of his reign. So trust you have a Bible with you, and you're opening to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for 10 years during Asa's days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim, 
and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Asa also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. What we have here is a wonderful picture of the peace, the prosperity that comes from seeking God. Asa came from a good line. He was uh, the actually the fourth in succession from King David, and we've been reading through First and Second Chronicles, and you may be, have been following along who the kings are after David. Uh, was gathered to his father Solomon, his son became king in his place. Following Solomon was his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was divided. Over Judah, Rehoboam became, uh, he was succeeded by his son Abijah, whose name we just mentioned, Second uh, Chronicles 14, Abijah. When Abijah died, he, his, he was succeeded by another righteous king whose name was Asa, and then Asa, when his reign was finished, which was 41 years, he was succeeded by his son, his son Jehoshaphat, another godly king. There's a heritage, there's a lineage here of godliness, of inheritance. Do you think very much about your inheritance, about your lineage, about where you came from? Paul, was, Paul mentions this specifically in regard to his young disciple Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.5, uh, he says to Timothy, I'm mindful of the sincere faith which first existed in your grandmother Lois and also in your mother Eunice and now is in you also. Timothy, I'm reminding you, you've got a good heritage, a good lineage. Don't forget it. You have something to live up to. You've received some good stuff from your ancestors. But let me ask you, have you ever, have you received anything good from your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents going on back? Are you aware of your lineage, of your history, of where you came from? Your good looks, your intelligence. You didn't get those things, assuming you have those things, which I'm not necessarily assuming. Uh, well, you didn't get them from yourself. You didn't make them yourself. Where do you get them? You inherited them from your ancestors. Those, they were passed down to you. And in the same way, a godly heritage is passed down to us in many cases, as it was true for Asa and for Timothy. Did you get anything spiritually good from the people that came before you? Do you appreciate that? My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, was a man named Max Lefkowitz. And uh, he, he died uh, after I, when I was just a couple of years old, so I have no recollection of him. But um, he was a man who, worshiped, who lived in Staten Island, New York, uh, Max worshipped the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Every Sabbath, he went to the synagogue to worship God. And I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. I have some godly heritage. How about you? 
Anybody, anybody that you can look back on? The kings of, of Israel and Judah, not all godly men, not all of them passed down righteousness, and we'll see that uh, very shortly. Um, just in the previous chapter, in chapter 13 of Second Chronicles, which you know as you've been following along with us, we read about Jeroboam, who was king of Israel, and uh, during the time that Rehoboam was king of Judah. And, and Jeroboam, very, very wicked king, very, very wicked leader. He was a rebel. He was an idolater. Uh, he, he, le he led Israel into all kinds of um, apostasy and spiritual harlotry, a wicked man. And for generations, the effects of his idolatry are, 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 are mentioned, and we are made aware of them. Not all the kings, not all the lineage is good, far from it. One of the things I love about this book, and especially about some of the historical sections like Kings and Chronicles where we've been reading, is that we're, we're given an abundance of examples. Examples of wickedness, wicked men and women, and what not to do. Examples of godly men and women, and what to do. So we don't have to wonder, uh, because we, know, we understand something of our lineage. What about Asa? What can we learn from him? The thing that jumps out to me, to me the most from the opening verses of uh, 2 Chronicles 14, which we've just read, is the fact of the land being undisturbed during his reign. Did you pick that up? It's the word undisturbed is used three times just in the opening verses. It talks about, uh, in, the, in, in the very first mention of Asa, it says he was king in uh, Abijah's place and the land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. In verse five, it says that he removed the high places, the incense altars from the cities of Judah and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Verse six, he built the cities of Judah. Since the land was undisturbed, and there was no one at war with him during those days. Undisturbed. Could you use a little undisturbed in your life? The Hebrew adjective that's used here is the adjective shakat. Uh, it starts with the, the, the Hebrew letter sheen, just like shalom. Shakat uh, is uh, a powerful adjective in the Hebrew. Shakat is translated it, it, by the way, it's transliterated as S-H-A-Q-U-A-T, Q-U-T, Q-U-A-T, Shakant. But it's translated in English as quiet, tranquil, at rest, at peace, still. I could use some of that. I could use some peace, some rest, some stillness in my life. Anxiety, huge problem in the modern psyche. Many people go to counselors and therapists, psychiatrists sometimes, with anxiety. If you, if you go to a counselor with anxiety, you, they may tell you something like this. What I want you to do is relax and close your eyes, take a couple of deep breaths, and go to your quiet place. Have you heard this expression, your quiet place? It may be an imaginary place. It may be a place where you love to go. John Runkle, Dave Freer, they have the same quiet place. It's called the Grand Canyon. Fortunately, it's big enough for the both of them. You got a quiet place, a place where you like to go? 
My quiet place is uh, the streams, the rivers, the forests, the lakes of the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. But how about you? You got a, you got a quiet place? For the believer, the real quiet place is in the presence of the Lord. It's not a physical place that you can imagine. You can't get to it by meditating and taking deep breaths because it's not a physical location. It's the presence of the Lord. That is our quiet place. And in Psalm 46, verse 10, Psalm 46, 10, the Lord says this to us, be still and know that I am God. Some translations say, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. By extension, I will be exalted in your life. I am your quiet place. Now I have a, fi a quiet place that's my favorite in the scriptures. And I'd like to take you there, uh, and it's in Mark chapter 4. So please flip with me in your Bible or follow along as you do that in the Mark chapter four, the Gospel of Mark. This is toward the end of Mark four. I'm going to be reading starting at around verse 37. This is a quiet place that doesn't start out being very quiet. Here's what's going on, and some of you remember the story. Jesus is in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee with some disciples. Verse 37, and there arises a fierce gale of wind, Mark 4, 37. Now this passage, by the way, is written in a tense of the Greek verb that's called the aorist tense. Some of you are familiar with this. But the writers often will, would write in the aorist tense, and what they're doing is they're reporting on an event that's already taken place, but they're writing in the present tense verbs to give us a sense of the immediacy and the closeness, the reality of it. So Mark says in 437, there arises a fierce gale of wind, and the waves are breaking over the boat, so much that the boat is already filling up. Jesus himself is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they wake him, and they say to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he gets up, and he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind dies down, and it becomes perfectly calm. It becomes perfectly calm. This is the quiet place in the middle of a storm. Disciples are not feeling too quiet. They don't have a whole lot of a sense of shakat. They're feeling a little panicked and they go and wake up Jesus. By the way, I think this is the equivalent of intercessory prayer. When you're in a panic, when you're in a mess, when you're in a situation that's beyond your control, go wake up Jesus. Jesus, get up, don't you care? We're perishing here. They go and they wake up Jesus. It helps to have the person who has ultimate authority over heaven and earth in the boat with you, doesn't it? So he gets up and he says, shut up. Not exactly. He says, hush to the wind and to the waves, be still. And it becomes perfectly calm. This is Shekant. This is the real quiet place. 
But let's go back to, to, to Second uh, Chronicles 14 and, and look at more, a little bit more about what Shekat meant under the reign of Asa. Give me just a second here as my Kindle wants to be obstinate. Working our way back to Second Chronicles chapter 14. Shakat. The, 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 the undisturbedness, the peace, the tranquility, the stillness that occurred during the, the, the reign of Asa lasted for 10 years. It says at the end of verse one that the, the, the land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days, for 10 years. That's a long time. Would you like to have some peace, some rest, some, some shakat in your life for 10 years? But that's actually only a portion of Asa's reign. He, he, he reigned for 41 years in Judah. So, but for a roughly one quarter of his reign, they, they experienced shakat. And the shakat um, resulted from, from Asa's character. It, it, it was a result of who he was. It, was, it didn't last forever. Uh, in, in, in verse nine, we'll find out that it all ended when an Ethiopian named Zerah came up. And Zerah comes and wages war against Judah and against Asa. And he brings an army that's roughly twice the size of Asa's. And Asa calls out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him from the hand of, of Zerah the Ethiopian. But we have some Zerahs in our life, don't we? Some people who, come, uh, who rise up against us and, and challenge the, the peace and the rule of God. And, and, and graciously, in verse 12, the Lord routs Zira, and uh, Asa is able to restore the, this shakat of God. But going back to verse 2, the peace of God that came to Judah during the time of Asa was really a direct result of his character as king of Judah. It says, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He did good. God has given you and me some good to do in our lives. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that he's prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. Are you walking in the good deeds that the Lord has given you to do? And then he, it goes on, the writer of the Chronicles, and it says that Asa did right in the sight of his God. This is what my brother Ephraim was talking to us about last week, about living in the sight of God. Solomon prays that God's eyes would be open day and night to the temple. And the Lord says to David, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Here's the facts. Every person ever born, every girl and boy, every man and woman lives in the sight of God. The writer to the Hebrew says, um, if all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, nothing is hidden from God's sight. 
So in a way, it seems almost redundant to say Asa was, li was living in the sight of God. But what it means was that he was deliberately and willfully living to please God. Asa was in a sense saying, I don't care what people think about me. I'm going to do what's right in the sight of the only person that, I li that I'm living to please. I'm living in the sight of God. That's what righteousness is, and that's what it was for him to do what's right in the sight of God. Asa was a lot like the Lord Jesus. You know, the Pharisees came and criticized him and attacked him, and he said, I'm only doing the things I see my father doing. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's in uh, John chapter 8. I only do the things that are pleasing to him. I live in the sight of God. That was what Asa was striving to do. Are you living to please other people or are you living in the, in the sight of the Lord your God? What did Asa do as a result of this righteousness? In verse 3, 2 Chronicles 14:3, he removed the foreign altars and high places. He tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim. Very close to the essence of righteousness is removing idolatry, smashing the idols. This is at the very heart of what it means to be a righteous person. The first two of the Ten Commandments concern this. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of anything that's in the heaven above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. No idols. What Asa was doing was in specific, direct obedience to Exodus chapter 34, what God told Moses in Exodus 34. So please turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 34. I want to read a couple of verses with you there. Second book of the Bible, Exodus, the 34th chapter. Please flip with me to Exodus 34. I'm going to start reading it about verse 12. The Lord gave very specific instructions to the children of Israel through Moses about how they were behave, to behave and what they were to do when they crossed over into the promised land. He gave them some direction. He gave them some warnings. He said, I don't want you to be like the Canaanites, like the nations that you're going to be living among. Exodus 34, 12. Watch yourself. Look out. This is a, a warning. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, verse 13, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. The fervency, the energy, the zeal of iconoclasm. These are, are not gentle verbs here. Tear down, smash, cut them down. Doesn't this sound kind of radical? Yeah, it's pretty radical. Doing this came at a great personal cost to King Asa, righteous Asa. We're going to read in chapter 15. Let's go back to 
out of Exodus back to Second Chronicles again. We're going to read in chapter 15 about Asa's mom. I don't know if you know about Asa's mom, but her name was Mekah, and she was an idolatress. Uh, Mekah refused to give up her idols, although she was the queen mother. Asa didn't cut her a break. He burned down her ashram. She was demoted from her place as queen mother. So Asa's, because of his zeal, his iconoclasm, his desire to obey the Lord, it cost him his relationship with his own mother. Sometimes there's a price to pay. What else did Asa do, verse 4, after he cut down the ashram? He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Now that I'm king, Asa says, it's not optional. I'm not going to give you a choice about whether or not you're going to serve God, whether you're going to seek him, whether you're going to keep the laws and commandments. You're going to do it because I'm king and I say so. This is a righteous exertion of authority. There are lots and lots of ungodly, unrighteous examples of authority, aren't there? We could look all around our globe today and see men who are exerting their authority in an unrighteous way to make themselves richer, uh, to steal the resources and the land of other people and other nations, to impoverish many at their own, uh, to their own benefit, greed, uh, all kinds of unrighteous, ungodly examples of authority. So maybe we should conclude that we shouldn't have any more authority if so many people do it so, use it so wickedly. No, that's not the right conclusion. The fact that there is an unrighteous use of authority suggests that there is a righteous use of authority. We believe in authority. The scripture teaches authority, and Asa is a perfect example of someone who used the authority that was given to him by the Lord for the sake of godliness and righteousness and to bring not only righteousness, but peace. And this is the things he commands them to do in verse four, to seek the Lord. This is the righteousness of the heart. And to observe the laws and the commandments, the two parts of righteousness. You see, righteousness is in my heart and it's in my deeds. And God is looking at both in your life. He wants to see that your heart is in, in the right place and righteous before him. You're seeking him with your whole heart and that your deeds are right too. Are you keeping the law? Are you keeping the commandments? Both sides of righteousness. This is what Asa commanded. He goes on in verse five. It's, you know, he's, just, he's relentless, this Asa. He just keeps going. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. I can almost hear Asa thinking, you know, now that I've gotten rid of all the, all the idols in Jerusalem, what about the rest of the cities of Judah? I want to be sure that my people aren't going out of town, going to some other place, finding other high places, other ashram poles, other altars, other places to burn incense to alien foreign gods which have been forbidden to us. What he's doing is he's making provision to make it impossible for there to be future idolatry in his land. This is a lot of zeal. Did you ever have the Lord reveal an idol to you or a sin in your life and you repented of it, sort of? Partial repentance is not repentance. 
Well, you know, I'm really going to stop doing that soon for a while. I reserve the right to maybe resume it again in the future sometime, maybe. That's not repentance. And what Asa is doing is, you're going to we're going to stop the sin for good. The Apostle Paul gives us a, a powerful injunction in Romans 13, 14. You may want to check this verse out uh, later or turn to it, I'm not sure, but it's, it's Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And this is what Paul says. He says, um, clothe yourself. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Lord Jesus, if I am really putting you on, I'm not going to leave the door open for me, for, for me to do more fleshly stuff in the future. I'm going to make no provision for the flesh in the re regard to its lusts. And then again, uh, at the end of the verse, the kingdom is undisturbed as a result of getting rid of all the idols in all the cities of Judah, not just some, not just a few. There's another powerful picture of Shakat in the New Testament. And I'm not going to take the time to turn there because it's a story that I think many of you are already familiar with and that's actually preached on quite a lot. Uh, but it's in Luke chapter 10 if you want to, to look it up or check it out later. But this is a story about Jesus coming to some friend's house to visit, you may remember. And uh, he, Jesus shows up right around mealtime I don't know if you have any friends or family that always seem to come by your house right about when it's time to eat. We call them freeloaders. Was Jesus a freeloader? Jesus comes to visit uh, Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, around verse 40, somewhere in that part of the chapter. And um, Martha is distracted with all the preparations. She's getting the meal ready. But Mary... Mary plunks herself down at the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. And Martha finds this to be very annoying, and she goes to Jesus and says, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. You know, when Jesus has to say your name twice, you're probably in trouble. Elena, Elena, Jeff, Jeff, I'm in for it now. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Very few things are important, really only one. Mary has chosen the good part. It will not be taken away from her. Martha, distracted, worried, bothered. None of you have ever been distracted or worried or bothered, right? What are the things in your life that distract you, that worry you, that bother you, that agitate you? You probably will never be free of those things. Earlier in the service, the Lord spoke a word to us about if the Son would set us free, we'd be free indeed. You probably will never be free of the distractions unless you deliberately and volitionally do what Mary did, and that is she sat down at the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. We can eat any time, right? But let's listen to the Lord Jesus. Jesus calls that the good part, the good part that will not be taken away from her. Asa goes on. He doesn't even stop there. And in verse 6, 
now that the, land, the kingdom is undisturbed under him. Verse 6, it says that he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed, and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. Time to build. Time to build fortified cities. What do you, what do you look forward to doing when, you're, when, it, when it's time to rest? In Western civilization, in our culture, we equate rest with leisure. I'm gonna go down to the beach and wiggle my toes in the sand. I'm gonna get a whole lot of snacks and put them next to me on the couch and I'm gonna watch TV and veg out for hours. Nothing wrong with leisure and rest and relaxation. The Lord affords us those things. But, but Asa said, you know, the Lord has given me rest. I'm in a place of peace, a place of being undisturbed. And there's something I can do besides just leisure and relaxation. I can use this time to build, to make Judah build. Has the Lord given you anything to build in your life? And when you have some leisure and a moment to breathe, when Jesus says, peace be still, are you, are, you, are you willing, are you able, are you interested in building? He goes on, it goes on in verse 7. He says there was peace during those years because the Lord had given them rest. And, and Asa said, I'm, I've got something to tell you, Judah. He said to Judah, verse 7, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars thinking about the future, warfare that might be yet to come. He says, the land is still ours. Why? Because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built, and they prospered. The Lord wants us to build. He wants us to prosper. He gives us rest for a reason. The reason that we have ability to do that is because we sought the Lord, the land is still ours. We are in possession of the land. He's given us rest on every side. This is the peace of God, the shalom of God. Peace means a lot more than just the cessation of war, the end of warfare. Peace, peace involves uh, prosperity. It involves building. Some beautiful pictures in the Psalms of prosperity, of what it means to prosper before the Lord. Did you know the Lord wants you to prosper? He really does. In Psalm 1, it talks about that. It says, how blessed is a man who doesn't walk after the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Asa talked about the law and the commandments. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It bears its fruit in its season. Whatever he does, he prospers. What a blessing. That's the blessing of prosperity. Lots of Psalms. Another one is Psalm, 40, uh, Psalm 37. It talks about the blessings of prosperity. It ends in verse, in verse 11 of Psalm 37, and it says, he says, the humble will dwell in the land. Remember, Asa said, the land is ours because we've sought the Lord. The humble will dwell in it, dwell in the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The Lord has that for us. Did you know our God 
is a God of abundance. Sometimes we think, you know, I don't want to ask the Lord for too many things. I don't want to bother him because what if he runs out of money? What if he runs out of resources? You don't have to worry about that. Our dad is rich. Our dad is rich. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about himself as the, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and he contrasts himself with the, the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, but I'm not gonna give them very much. You know, I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spoil them. Is that what he says? He says, no, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, have an, have an abundance. Our God is a God of abundance. That's the way he wants to bless us. Do you believe that? Hallelujah. The Lord gives anointing in times of warfare. David said, the Lord broke through my hand like the breakthrough of mighty waters. The Lord anoints even a man of war. The Lord gives, a, gives anointing in times of peace and prosperity and, and flourishing. And uh, the Lord anointed, David, anointed Asa to bring peace and prosperity to the land of Judah. Paul said, we can be content in whatever circumstance we are. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If you're experiencing a storm in your life right now, if you hear that, that fierce gale of wind that uh, Mark talked about in Mark chapter four, this is what I wanna remind you of. Jesus is in your boat. Don't be afraid to wake him up. Don't you care that I'm perishing, Lord? Wake him up, wake him up. The operative phrase really brothers and sisters, is not that Jesus is in, is in our boat. It's that we're in Jesus' boat. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you uh, today for the words that you've spoken to us. Lord, through um, Libby and Scott and Ephraim uh, today, and especially through Ephraim last Sunday about how you want to counsel us, instruct us in the way you would, we should go and counsel us with your eye upon us. And Lord, we, uh, we want to be open to that. We want to watch your eye. Lord, we want to be like Asa. We want to live uh, in your sight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for letting me be in the boat with you.